Heavenly Father, each and every one of us has a loved one who doesn't know you. And Lord, we may have even shared Christ with them. Lord, we know that we live in a world of skepticism, agnosticism, unbelief. Lord, we pray that as we look at this particular passage of Scripture, that, Lord, you would fill us with hope. Lord, earlier, Isaac prayed, Lord, change us. And, Lord, we we know that you're going to answer that prayer. Each and every person will leave this auditorium changed. They will become open or more open. They will become closed or more closed. Their hearts will become softer or their hearts will become harder. Eyes will be opened. Or darkness will become more entrenched and more intense. Lord, we know that whenever we pray the prayer, Lord, change us that you will answer that prayer. And Father, I pray that you would change us in the likeness of Jesus that we would be open to your grace and open to your mercy, open to your forgiveness and open to your love in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 37. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Because they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words, has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command that I should say what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, Just as the Father has told me, so I speak. At the end of chapter 12, Jesus speaks his last words in public ministry about the opportunity of salvation. Each and every one of us knows someone 
who could be characterized, if you will, as an unbeliever, as a seeker, as a person who doesn't necessarily know the Lord. Jesus, you'll remember, hides himself from the religious leaders in verse 36. It says, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. You see, belief and unbelief, the presence or the absence of Jesus determines the reality of whether or not you have a right relationship with God. It is the presence or the absence of Jesus in the heart of the individual which presents the great divide between belief and unbelief. Unbelievers rarely introduce themselves as unbelievers. Every once in a while, I will have a person come up and say, Glad to meet you, Padre. I'm an unbeliever. But that's pretty, pretty rare. They prefer the more gentle, free thinker. Or skeptic. Or agnostic. Or impartial. Or objective. Some take a more combative position. People like Richard Dawkins, the so-called free-thinking atheist and champion of of unbelief in our generation. Some a less combative position. And they go by uninterested, detached, aloof. R.C. Sproul wrote a brief little book entitled, If There's a God, Why Why Are There Atheists? The subtitle, Why Atheists Believe in Unbelief. It's actually a very good volume. In there, he says, and I quote, a common charge leveled against people with religious beliefs in general and with Christian convictions in particular is that their beliefs are motivated not by reasonable evidence, but by psychological needs. But is that criticism founded? Is it truly the believer who is trying to fill a psychological void Or is it the unbeliever who's trying to fill a spiritual void? Does the life and ministry of Jesus answer life's deepest questions? Or does it plunge the person into the deep waters of doubt, of skepticism and unbelief? John argues the religious leaders would not believe in spite of the evidence that they could not believe because their hearts were hard and their eyes were blind. Therefore, God said that they should not believe in verse 39, not because they because of insufficient evidence, but because their hearts are hard and their eyes are closed and they've spurned God's grace. Look again in verse 37. We begin with the hardcore unbeliever. In verse 37 it says, But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. Now John's statement isn't simply a statement of fact, but it's an appeal to logic. The unbeliever is acting or thinking illogically. Their unbelief makes no sense. John emphasizes so many signs, but although he had done so many, many signs. 
And when we take a look at the nature of miracles and the frequency of miracles and the quality of miracles that are listed in Matthew and Mark and Luke, but particularly in John, it becomes overwhelming. In John's gospel, Jesus has turned water into wine in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Jesus has healed the nobleman's son in chapter 4, verse 46 through 54. Jesus has healed the impotent man or the paralyzed man in chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Jesus has fed the 5,000 in chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Jesus has walked on water in chapter 6, verses 15 through 21. He's healed the blind man in chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. He's raised Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11, verses 1 through 41. The vast majority up till now has been spent on these miracles. But notice the statement, but although he had done so many signs before them, don't miss that, before them. You know what that means? He didn't do this in secret. He didn't put a cavity in somebody's head. He didn't sprinkle gold dust. He didn't lengthen someone's leg. These are extraordinary miracles that he did before them. Not in a closed laboratory, absent scrutiny and skepticism. Jesus did these miracles in the open. Not simply in front of dozens of witnesses. Not simply in front of scores of witnesses. Not simply in front of hundreds of witnesses. But in front of thousands of people. He did it in the open. And by the way, unbelievers typically don't simply reject the miracles of Jesus. They often reject miracles of all sorts. C.S. Lewis wrote, If you begin by ruling out the supernatural, you will perceive no miracles. Many skeptics and unbelievers will often say, Well, I can't believe anything that can't be empirically proved. Really? Do you love your wife? Yes. Prove it. Empirically. Well, I stay with her. I live with her. I provide for her. But is that what love is? Is it an empirical act of loyalty? Ladies, is that what love is? The unbeliever may have a tendency to reject the miraculous, the unbeliever also rejects biblical revelation. Look what it says in verse 38. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He goes on and he quotes Isaiah chapter 53 verse 1 and Isaiah chapter 6 verse 10. Isaiah foretells their unbelief, their skepticism, their hardness of heart. Isaiah has this vision of God's plan and purposes coming true in the life of the children of Israel. Isaiah is a prophet, or he was a prophet. And he prophesied during the time that preceded the Babylonian captivity. And Isaiah prophesied that God had a plan, that God had a purpose, that God was going to send the Messiah. The Messiah would come, but that they would reject him. When he says, Lord, who has believed our report? The NIV translates that word report as message. The Greek word is very interesting. It's akoe. It's from the verb form akuo. 
it actually has in its root origin the, the picture of an ear. I've been doing some um, research on ancient alphabetic systems. And ancient alphabetic systems would also often draw a character of an ear to represent hearing. And so early on in, in history, this word ear is used four times in the New Testament to describe the organ of hearing. It was later came to be used in the sense of a report or a rumor like it's used in Matthew 24. One very famous Bible scholar um, who is a language expert wrote in this sense, akoe approximately approximates closely to angelia, which means announcement and kirigma, which is a technical term for proclamation or preaching. The emphasis always, of course, falls on the one not who's preaching, but on the one who's hearing. And so he's telling the story. He's preaching the message. Who has believed our report? The idea being the news is so spectacular. It's so incredible. Who is going to believe it? But the unbeliever rejects miracles and rejects revelation. But they also look what else they reject the arm of the Lord. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What does that mean, the arm of the Lord? you know what it means? It's a, it's a phrase that's used to describe God's strength and God's power. You see, the unbeliever doesn't simply reject miracles. They don't just simply reject revelation. They reject God's ability to actually do what God says he'll do. And you know what part of the gospel is? You don't change yourself. God will change you. You don't forgive yourself. God will forgive you. You don't change your heart from the inside out. God will change your heart from the inside out. And so even when Isaiah says, And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, the answer is twofold. The arm of the Lord has been revealed to those who have embraced his power and his strength, who have embraced the goodness of the message of the gospel. In other words, who has and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Why? To the person who saved and delivered, to the person who's humbled himself or herself, who has acknowledged their sin, who's diligently sought them. For the person who has come to God in Christ, who has confessed their sin, who's turned from their sin, who acknowledges Jesus as Savior, they've experienced the transition from death into life. That's who God has revealed himself to. But to the religious leaders, they've rejected him. In Luke's gospel, they just come right out and just plainly say in Luke chapter 22, verse 6, 67, if you are the Christ, tell us. Okay, Jesus, enough of the parables. Enough of this stuff. Enough of beating around the bush. You're all in or you're all out. If you're the Christ, just let us know. You know what he says? If I tell you, you still won't believe. Miracles. Revelation. Power, strength, declaration. In chapter 12, verse 39, look what it says. 
Therefore, they could not believe. Because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. When Isaiah first wrote these words and spoke these words, it was in reference to the message of hope that he was giving to the children of Israel concerning their own upcoming captivity. But the Messiah would repeat the message. By the way, this verse is found seven times in the Bible. And the reason why it's found seven times in the Bible is because there's this reoccurring message. Believe. Don't unbelieve. Receive. Don't reject. Turn from your sin. Don't remain in your sin. It's a warning. And so if you've ever asked the question, how are we supposed to think about unbelief and how are we supposed to incorporate the concept of judicial judgment? Clearly, the passage says God blinds them and hardens their hearts. He has blinded their eyes. He has hardened their hearts. So what does this mean? I'm going to tell you in part, clearly a person can't receive the Lord Jesus Christ and there not be a remarkable change that takes place. But what we sometimes forget is that people can receive him or people can reject him. And make no mistake about it. If you reject him, there's also a remarkable change that takes place in a fundamental way. No matter how mild, no matter how seeming insignificant, the denial, the rejection. Hey, you know, um, I, I don't necessarily know that there really is a God. I don't necessarily know that the Bible is true. I don't necessarily know that Christianity is the only way to God. I may not be what you call an unbeliever. I'm a seeker. Oh, that's a great name. That's a great thing to call yourself. A seeker, okay. Let's just see what we're seeking for just a moment. I'm looking. And I haven't really found out what I'm looking for. And then God tells you the truth about your sinful condition. God tells you the truth about your heart. God tells you the truth about the emptiness and the darkness and the wickedness that's inside of you. And God tells you the truth that you have a Savior. You see, no matter what you might think, denying Jesus, rejecting Jesus is a very serious offense against God. God cannot overlook the rejection of His Son. He loves His Son. The Bible says that God sent His Son to take on the sin of human beings. Jesus has done everything for the glory of God. And God can't simply overlook a person's willful, consistent unbelief and rejection when a person has the opportunity to open their heart to Christ and instead they choose to close their heart to Christ, when they have an opportunity to open their eyes to the truth and they choose to close their eyes to the truth, guess what? There are consequences. And the consequences are spelled out. God blinds the eyes 
of the unbeliever. God hardens the heart of the unbeliever. God condemns the unbeliever to be lost. God condemns the unbeliever to remain in their sickness, to remain in their sinfulness, to remain unhealed, to remain in darkness. And God refuses to reveal his glory to the unbeliever. What are you saying? Does does this mean that God causes unbelief? No. N-O spells no. You know what? Over and over again. The scripture repeats thousands of times over and over again that a human being is lost But they're not lost apart from that person's will or against their will. A person is lost because he or she doesn't want to have anything to do with God. They don't want to have anything to do with Christ. They don't want to have anything to do with the Bible. I don't care about the Bible. I don't care about Jesus. I don't care about the Lord. I don't care about heaven. I don't care about hell. If a person does something, it will have consequences and there exists the law of sowing and reaping and if you sow unbelief you will reap unbelief if you sow rejection you will reap rejection if you sow hardness you will reap hardness if you sow unbelief you will reap unbelief and so if yours is a life filled with doubt filled with skepticism filled with unbelief guess what that's going to mark your life And I wish I could say to you, and I'm a man of faith. I'd be lying to you. I'm a man of doubt and unbelief. You want to know why? Because even ever since I became a Christian, when I was 16 years old, every week and every month and every year of my entire life has been spent trying to find out, is this really true? Is this a big, fat, stinking joke? Is this some some gigantic gigantic hoax that has tried to suck me into the circumstances? Am am I really better off just living out there in the world indulging myself? And I've discovered something. That the Bible is true and trustworthy. And that the claims of Christ are true and trustworthy. You see... There is a law of sowing and reaping. Paul talks about it in Galatians 6-7. You know the scripture. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows that he will also reap. But there isn't simply a law of sowing and reaping. There's There's a law of measure. The Bible says as a man measures out something, it will be measured to him. If you're stingy, you'll get stinginess back. If you're greedy, you'll get greed back. There's a law of Sowing and reaping, there's a law of measuring, but there's also a law of seeking. Did you know that? The Bible says, if a person seeks, the person will find. And the harder you look, the more you will find. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. There is the law, not only of sowing and reaping of measuring and seeking, but there's also a law of willful hardness and impenitence. And the more a person hardens himself or herself, the harder and more impenitent they get. And impenitent means unwilling to say you're sorry, 
for the sins that you've committed. Impenitent means I'm fine just the way I am. Leave me alone. In fact, a person can become so hard, a person can become so impenitent that they never repent. That even the thought of repentance never crosses their mind. They never even think, I could change. My heart could be different. God might be able to change me. As a matter of fact, such a person has a very special chamber inside of their soul. It's a treasure place. But they're not treasuring up eternal life. They're treasuring up death. They're not treasuring light. They're treasuring darkness. They're not treasuring heaven, but they're treasuring judgment. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, Paul talks about it. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. In Romans chapter 2, verse 6, it says, Who will render to each one according to his deeds? Hey, I want to be judged on, on the basis of what I do. Okay. Okay. Time out. I don't want to be judged on the basis of what I do. What do you want to be judged on? I want to be judged on the basis of grace and mercy and forgiveness and hope. So you want to be judged on the basis of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. No! I want heaven! But no Savior. I want forgiveness. But no Savior. Really? Then the Bible says that there's another law. It's the law of being fitted or outfitted for destruction. In Romans chapter 9, verse 22, Paul writes, What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? You know, it's the stock show right about now. Are any of you familiar with Shepler's? It's a Western wear place. You know why you go to Shepler's? To get outfitted. To get outfitted to be a cowboy or a cowgirl. You get your cowboy hat, you get your cowboy shirt, you get your cowboy belt, you get your cowboy pants, and you get your cowboy boots. That's the place where you go to get outfitted for the stock show. By the way, Shepherds isn't giving me a gift certificate for this announcement. If you want to be outfitted for the mountains, you go to REI. If you want to hike, if you want to have fun in the mountains, if you want cold weather gear, you get outfitted for REI. That's where you can buy the suitable material that you need to go to the place where you're going. And do you know where you get outfitted for hell? You continue to reject Jesus. You reject miracles. You reject revelation. You stop looking, stop seeking, you give up, you 
reject Jesus. And you reject him over and over and over again. There's another law. It's the law of God's supreme purpose. And God's supreme purpose is this. It's found in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Where it says, where Jesus would be the first among many brothers. The supreme purpose of God is God wants Jesus to have brothers and sisters who will be conformed into his image and that our elder brother be worshipped and honored and served eternally so that we will have a relationship with him eternally. And by the way, listen carefully, because if you miss this next point, you will have missed the whole point of this message. The Bible contains no description of anyone coming to Jesus on Jesus's terms if the Bible contains a description of no one coming to Jesus being turned away. Jesus has come to me. Jesus says, turn from your sin. He says, come to me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. The Bible never describes God rejecting anyone who believes in him, who turns from their sin, who loves him, who seeks him, who's willing to turn from their sin and accept the Savior. And I'll be honest with you, I thought I would be the first. See, I thought... I thought certainly God would say, come to me, all you who labor and heavily, heavy laden. And he would go, yeah, yeah, I'll take you and I'll take you and I'll take you and I'll, and I'll take you and I'll take you and I'll take you and I'll take you. And there's Tracy, I'll pass. Pass. Because there are certain people who are by their very nature are so wicked, so obscene, so lost, so broken, so empty, so not savable. And you know what I discovered? That God would accept someone even like me. That if I would come to him in repentance, that if I would come to him in submission and humility, that if I would come to him on his terms, he would accept me and not reject me. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible never describes God rejecting anyone who loves him, who believes in him, who turns from their sin, who embrace him and who are willing to come to him on his terms. In Deuteronomy chapter four, verse twenty nine, it says, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you will seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. And for the person who says, I don't want to seek him with all my heart, with all my soul, I want to walk away from him. What happens to that person? What happens to the person who continues in obstinate unbelief, in persistent sin, in continued rejection? Guess what? They experience a kind of a mental darkness. Their, their minds are blinded by Satan and they can't see spiritual truth. They become enveloped in moral darkness. The unsaved love 
their sin and they hate the light and the judicial pronouncement of guilt begins to surround them because if they won't obey the light, God sends darkness. And if they reject the continual prompting, the pricking of their own conscience, there's a a sore, a scar, a scab that begins to form right on the surface of your soul. And then God sends darkness and Christ hides from them. And that temporary darkness becomes an eternal darkness. And look what it says in verse 42. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue. There were secret agent believers. Even in spite of all of that rejection and unbelief, there were a group of people who couldn't resist the the power of God. They They couldn't make the miracles go away. They couldn't explain away what the Scriptures had to say about Jesus, but they were afraid. And by the way, Remember what is at the root of fear. It's loss. And by the way, when the Bible describes the person who goes to hell, you know what is right at the top of the list? The fearful. That's what it says. It begins with the fearful. The unbelieving. These are the ones who inherit eternal darkness. They were silent believers. They were afraid. They were afraid of being excommunicated. They were afraid of being put out of the synagogue. They were afraid of being expelled, which means some would lose their jobs. They would lose their security, their profession, their livelihood, their authority, their recognition, their esteem, their honor. They they wanted to be a believer, but they couldn't do it openly because they were afraid. And the same is true today. There are people at the University of Colorado in the science and technology department who are afraid to say, I believe in Jesus and I believe that the Bible is true because they're afraid they're going to lose their job. The moment that you come out on record and you say, I believe that the Bible is true, people are going to think you're a nutcase. You mean you really believe that the Bible is true? Yeah. You believe that God can raise people from the dead? Yep. So they remain a secret believer, a secret disciple. And by the way, that's a contradiction in terms. One Bible writer said, either the secrecy kills the discipleship or the discipleship kills the secrecy. Ladies, have you ever had a guy come up to you and say, hey, I want you, I want to be your boyfriend, uh, but it has to be a secret. No one can know. Look, I will be your secret boyfriend and you will be my secret girlfriend. And your mother and father can't know. Brothers and sisters can't know. Friends and neighbors can't know. Girls, if a boy wants to be your secret boyfriend, why is that? They're ashamed of you. Admit it. They're ashamed of you. By the way, mothers talking to girls. If a boy comes to a girl and says, I want to be your secret boyfriend, what is the right response? No is right. Another good answer is run. (laughs) 
Believing in Jesus may result in a loss of power and prestige and place and position and profit. And some of your family and some of your friends may think that it's a drag. But you tell me, what's more difficult? To live a secret lie or to live for the truth? No wonder Paul, writing to Timothy, said, If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. So we claim to know him and to love him. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, Set your mind on things above and not on the things of the earth. In Matthew chapter 16, remember the very famous words of Jesus, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So why won't you confess Jesus? Why won't you live for Him? And in verse 43, look what it says. For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. He gives the reason. Because there are a group of people and life can be pretty much broken down. There are people who want the honor and the praise of human beings. They want the love that people can give them. They want to be accepted. They want to be esteemed. They want favor. They want recognition. They want earthly prestige, they want earthly commendation, they want professional honor, they want an image consultant. But you tell me what you want. You want to be approved by human beings or do you want to be approved by God? Let me ask you a hard question. What is it that you value? What is truly important to you? And how did what is so important to you manage to get so twisted and so mixed up and, and so upside down? At what point did the opinion of men matter more for the moment than the everlasting judgment of Jesus which exists way beyond the moment? Don't you think it makes more sense to defer to the wisdom of God than the fear of human beings? The judgment of God matters forever. The good opinion of human beings lasts only for a moment. Which makes more sense? To be accepted now? Or to be accepted forever? And look what it says concerning true believers in verse 44. Then Jesus cried out. This is emphasis. He, even though it seems unsavior-like, unmessianic-like, the expression is intensive. It wouldn't be inappropriate to translate this, he screamed. He's speaking shouting. He's shouting. He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. 
That might sound confusing to you on the surface. What are you saying, Jesus? What are you saying? He who believes in me believes not in me. You just gave this whole sermon about why you're supposed to believe in Jesus. And now you're saying, even if you believe in Jesus, you're not really believing in Jesus. Jesus, what are you saying? He's making an extraordinary claim. The extraordinary claim is he's claiming to represent God to mankind and to represent mankind to God. He is actually claiming that if you listen to Jesus, you're listening to the words of God. If you see Jesus, you are seeing God. If you see how Jesus responds in any given circumstance, you're seeing how God responds in any given circumstance in Christ, in Jesus, God meets human beings and human beings are met by God. This is exactly what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, when he said, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And mediator is an interesting word. In the language of the Roman people, the Bible was written in Greek and then it was translated into Latin. And the word mediator that was translated into Latin in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, is the, the word pontifex. The word ponta is the word we get for bridge and effects is the builder of the bridge. This was a word that was used to describe Roman emperors in their role as the head of state and the chief priest of the people. It was actually a word that was later adopted by the Roman bishops. Particularly, it became used of the Roman pontiff. He calls himself pontifex. Mediator means bridge builder. It means the person who builds the bridge so that you can get to a particular place. And remember, the audience of Jesus, these are observant Jews. These are observant Jews. These are Jews who would have characterized themselves as being the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are people who would say that they know God and love God and follow the law of God and the teachings of Moses. These would be people, if you ask them the question, are you a believer, what do you suppose they would have said? We are believers. We believe in the revelation of God. We believe that God spoke to Abraham. We believe that God spoke to Isaac and Jacob. That God revealed himself to Moses. We just don't believe Jesus. Because here's what you're telling us. You're telling us that we can't come to God apart from Jesus. When a person claims to believe in God apart from Christ, he or she is believing in a God of their own imagination, a God that they fabricated in their own mind. Do you remember when we were worshiping earlier and we sang the song? You are not a God created by human hands. You see, there's a real God, a self-existent God, and then there's the, the God of your imagination. 
when a person believes in Jesus, when they place their faith in Jesus, they are not only placing their faith in Jesus, they're placing their faith in God, the sovereign majesty who sent Jesus. That's the claim that's being made. That's what Jesus means when he says in verse 45, and he who sees me sees him who sent me. I want to see God. Look at Jesus. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. I want light. One of the dirty little secrets concerning unbelief and concerning darkness is consequences. Remember what I said to you. If belief brings light and life, doesn't it make sense to you that unbelief brings darkness and death? There were two famous unbelievers who lived generations apart. One was named Bertrand Russell and the other Richard Dawkins. Bertrand Russell in his own time was a champion of unbelief. And Richard Dawkins is a champion of unbelief. But both were asked a single disturbing question. In his movie, Expelled, Ben Stein asks Richard Dawkins, imagine that you find yourself, in spite of your persistent and willful unbelief, standing before the true and living God, and everything that you believed has been a hoax and a lie, and you're standing before the living God of heaven. And he asks you why you persisted in your unbelief. What are you going to say? And Richard Dawkins repeats the answer given by his unbelieving mentor generations earlier. You didn't give me enough evidence. I would ask him, I would stand before him and say, why didn't you give me more evidence? So the evidence of, of creation is not evidence of a creator. Evidence of conscience isn't evidence that there's right and there's wrong and good and evil. Evidence of revelation. I, I sent Jesus. And look at verse 47. It says, And if anyone hears my word and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. What? I'll read it again. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe... I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. I want to draw your attention to the word believe again. The old Greek manuscripts and early versions in the church have the verb phylatso translated that. It isn't the word pisteo. Pisteo, in John 3.16, for instance, where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes the word believes there, pisteo, means to trust in, rely on, and cling to. The word phylazo here means to guard or keep. It means to treasure, guard something as if you're guarding a precious possession, but it exists so that you will obey it, and the emphasis is on the obedience. So what in the world is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I'm not judging them. 
I didn't come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. In at least one way, the unbeliever is not judged by Jesus because he comes to the world to save the world. Here is the idea. The mission of Jesus and the motivation of God isn't so that you would go to hell. It isn't so that you would experience judgment. It isn't to condemn you. The thing that motivated God the Father to send God the Son is he loves you. He's motivated. The mission is motivated by love. So in what way? What what does this mean? In verse 48, it says, He who rejects me does not receive my words. Has that which judges. The word that I have spoken. You'll know the word there is singular. He's not talking about a particular phrase or a particular expression. He's talking about the sum and the substance of everything that he has said since the beginning of his ministry. And it says, that will judge him in the last day. Do you understand what's happening? The message of hope. The message of love. The message of the gospel will judge him. The unbeliever is judged, listen carefully, by the words of salvation. The very words will come back and haunt him or haunt her later on. As a matter of fact, the word itself will stand as a witness. The unbeliever rejects the words of salvation. Here is the idea and the picture that Jesus is giving. The word of salvation and the word of love and the word of hope will do one of two things. It will penetrate inside of you and change you. Or it will remain outside of you. And if it remains outside of you, it will stand with you in judgment. The full message of salvation is now, is at this very moment, available. That's the idea. The words of salvation have been brought to the planet Earth by the Savior. And there are people who will attempt to keep the words of salvation away from you. Because the words of salvation bring life. They also not only bring light, but they also bring darkness. They not only bring life, but they bring death. How do they bring death and darkness? It's when they're rejected. If a man rejects the words of salvation... He condemns himself or herself. So in what way does he condemn himself or herself? Because there will come a time when each and every person will stand before the righteous and holy King of heaven. They will stand before God and the words of salvation will not be found in them. The words will not be on the inside. They will be on the outside. And there are at least three reasons why the words of Jesus will judge a man. Number one, the words of Jesus are the commandment of God himself. This is what it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 23. And this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Here are your orders. Believe Jesus and love each other. And you will do one of two things with those orders. No. I won't believe Jesus. And I won't love each other. And then the second, the commandment of Jesus gives life. It says it is the Spirit 
that quickens or makes alive. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. And number three, the words of Jesus aren't simply true. They are the essence of truth. They are the very words of God, spoken by God, given by God to the Son. And that's why Jesus can say in verse 49, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command that I should say and what I should speak. Jesus didn't make this up. And in John chapter 3, verse 34, it says, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. Jesus speaks the words of God unencumbered. The unbeliever rejects God because the unbeliever rejects Jesus. I want God, but I don't want Jesus. Sorry. I want revelation, but not the Bible. Sorry. The unbeliever rejects God because the unbeliever rejects miracles. The unbeliever rejects God because the unbeliever rejects the power of God. The unbeliever rejects God because the unbeliever is afraid what people might think about him. You know, it was Mark Twain who said, It isn't the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. Each and every one of you who prayed the prayer, Lord, change me, will be. For better, for worse, lighter, darker, harder, softer. There is a time we know not when, a line we know not where, that marks the destiny of man twixt sorrow and despair. There is a line by man unseen. Once it has been crossed, even God in all his love has sworn that all is lost. I can't see the line. And neither can you. And so every week, I extend the invitation. But there is a time. I pray to God that now isn't your time. We know not when, a line we know not where that marks the destiny of man to sorrow and despair. There is a line, though, by man unseen once it has been crossed. That crossing is the crossing into hardness and apostasy whereby, guess what, hope is gone. And you know when you're in trouble? when you don't care. And there comes a time when you may not care ever again. They would not believe, it says in verse 37. They could not believe, it says in verse 39. And so they came to a place where they
they should not believe. And God's judgment was complete. There's still hope for you. I hope and pray that a penetrating seed has penetrated the hardness. I hope a ray of light has pierced the darkness and a seed has been planted and you should be able to ask the question, Lord, could you save somebody like me? Heavenly Father, I pray, I pray, I pray for these men and women. I pray for their loved ones. Every person right now is thinking about a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a companion or a friend. A person who has lived a life of willful, persistent unbelief and rejection. They have sown darkness. They have sown hardness. And now the hardness and the darkness continues to surround them. But Lord, for that person who will hear... Lord, I pray that you will speak to them. I pray that you'll speak to their heart. I I pray that you'll tell them that you love them and that you're still willing to save them. Lord, I pray that they would respond to the invitation instead of walking out harder and darker. The sun has come up, but the sun will set. Lord, I pray that it won't set on our hearts until we've experienced the warmth of your grace, the glow of your love, and the majesty of your forgiveness. Is that you? You need to know Jesus? You can. Give him your heart. Accept the invitation. We're going to stand in just a moment. I'm going to give you an opportunity to come down. If you'd like to experience joy. Remember Jesus, he called his disciples openly and publicly. He's not interested in a secret relationship with you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.